following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. You boys and girls know what a superstition is? Superstition is a, is a silly reflection on what causes trouble in our life. Don't walk under a ladder. It's dangerous. If a black cat crosses your path, well, you're going to have great difficulty. Um, modern man, you notice on airplanes, there's no 13th row. And in hotels, there's no 13th floor. And many a successful and well-educated major league pitcher will have a particular way that he walks out to the pitching mound. All these superstitions are denial of the first and third commandments in particular. Um, they're silly, but they are blasphemous. But how does a superstition arise? Often people exercise what in logic we would call a post-hoc fallacy, which says that because of this, necessarily this occurred. Now, the problem with that is that perhaps the cause was not the immediate cause of the effect. Perhaps something else was going on, a corollary that actually caused the effect. So take the superstition of don't walk under a ladder, it's bad luck, because one time a person walked under a ladder and a hammer fell on his head. Now, did the hammer fall on his head because he walked under the ladder? That's a corollary cause. That's a secondary thing. The hammer fell either because somebody up the ladder was um, uh, not careful, or you walking under the ladder weren't careful and hit the ladder, and the hammer fell. Now that's a post-hoke fallacy, ascribing to something as cause when actually it was something alongside it that was the cause. Now, that's what... Job's friends are doing with respect to his case ethically or morally. Because in their theology, uh, all suffering to the extent that Job suffered was caused by sin. Grievous sin in the life of the sufferer. Failing to recognize that, as we've seen already, there are corollary causes. And that sin might be part of the problem. It does not mean that the person who's suffering is a wicked, gross hypocrite in the sight of God. Well, that's the issue that's being debated here. Now, on Job's side, he's really debating. If you've studied anything about debate, boys and girls, or you will, you'll recognize that Job is, is reacting to arguments brought against him. But his friends, his friends are reacting, and they're not listening. And that's what we see now in the case of Bildab. Now, Job's first long speech, chapters 6 and 7, he defends his language, not that it was right, but there's extenuating circumstances. Yes, he spoke wrongly and rashly, but he defends his integrity, that he is not the man they're accusing him of being. In chapter 7, we've seen that he uh, is complaining about the intimate involvement of God in his life, but calls out on the basis of that, that if he has committed something to bring these things upon him, that God would pardon him and do so before he dies. 
We come now to the speech of the second friend, Bildad, uh, the descendant of Shua. Bildad the Shuite. Now Bildad's been sitting there stewing. He's not listening to what Job's saying. He's, listening to, he's reacting to the early speeches of Job. And he's reacting on the basis of what he has assumed. And thus he's not hearing what Job is saying. And you must keep that in mind. Uh, as you listen to these speeches, it's actually going to get worse on the side of the friends. And Job, through the process, is going to grow from faith to faith and grace to grace. But even though Bildad's not listening, by the goodness of God, the theology that Bildad now relates to Job is very accurate theology. He simply, as in the case of Eliphaz, is wrongly applying what he has to say here about the justice of God. But as we work our way through his words, we see then that uh, God is a just God who wisely exercises justice. That's the theme. God is a just God who wisely executes justice. And I'll open this up under two headings, declaration of God's justice and the application of God's justice. Well, in 1 through 10, we have the declaration of the principle of God's justice. In verses 1 through 3, Bildad begins with a pretty ferocious rebuke of Job. Then Bildad the Shuite answered, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? Now Job has said that his words were no more than wind. And by that he's saying, don't hold me accountable for what I've said in my, in my desperation. Yes, my words are vain. They have no more force than when. But how does Bildad respond? No, your words are a different kind of wind. Your words are a mighty wind, a powerful wind. Your words are a destructive wind because, and implied in his rhetorical question, your words are seeking to overthrow the justice of God. Now you see that in the question. Look at the question in verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Now it's a fantastic question. It's a question that demands a, uh, a, a negative answer. Uh, and it tells us a great deal about God. Notice of how he speaks of God. He says, does God, the Almighty, these are the two terms used in the patriarchal period of time. So in Genesis 17, when God appears to Abraham, it says, I am El Shaddai. These two words, I am God Almighty. These are the names by which these men of this era knew God as a powerful God, as an all-sufficient God, as a God with whom nothing is impossible. And I hope you know him this way. He's not changed. God Almighty who came to Abraham. God Almighty who said, a virgin can conceive and bear a son. God Almighty who said, yes, I can forgive the sins of the most wicked. God Almighty has not changed. He is your God by covenant. Revel. As I've said to you before, when you come across the names of God in the Bible, slow down. and Pay attention to them. Because every name is connected to what's being said in the context. Now here, because he is God Almighty, the all-powerful, sufficient God of the covenant, then he does not pervert justice. The first word translated justice is, in fact, judgment. 
And the second word, right, is actually righteousness. That God is a righteous God. He does all things on the basis of his righteous character. And thus he always does that which is right. He's just. That is the declaration. Now, Job has not in any way questioned the justice of God. You see, Job's problem is, as we've said, the same problem. He's beginning, to, he's beginning to grow a bit, as we'll see. But why is it that he who has been known to be a blameless man, a righteous man, why is he suffering as if he were a hypocrite? That, that's his question. He doesn't, he doesn't say, God, you're wrong. And we saw last week he admits he's a sinner, not understanding the full extent of the heinous, heinousness of sin. But Job, this is where he's stumbling. He's stumbling, why me? Why me, Lord? So he's not perverting the justice of God. He, he revels in the reality of all that God is. He was a man of God. He, he walked with God. Now, we will be tempted at times, as we'll speak later, to... Um, doubt the justice of God, won't we? And you have been. But we must affirm that the Almighty does not pervert justice or righteousness. Now, Bildad illustrates this principle by applying it to Job's children. Now, Eliphaz alluded to this, but Bildad has not an ounce of sympathy whatsoever. Here's a man, sometime within the last year, all of his children have been killed. And what does Bildad say? If your son sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgressions. Actually, as your sons sinned, your sons sinned against him, and he delivered them. Now, again, you see how he's reasoning backwards? He's reasoning back in this post-hope fallacy. They perished in this tornado. That means they were guilty. He had no evidence that they were guilty. They didn't have a reputation of being guilty. We see that Job nurtured them in the things of the Lord and led them in family worship and, and keeping right before God. But Bildad says, they died as a demonstration of what I'm telling you about the justice of God. Now that would simply be another knife into the heart of Job. We see how uh, in Satan's uh, dark wisdom, even the friends and counselors become means of temptation to Job. God, did you kill my sons as if they were wicked? But he also shows us here, kindly, that God's justice always makes place for mercy. So it is exercised. Exercised against um, hardened sinners. But notice what he says in verses uh, 5 through 7. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty... If you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Now, this is grand, because here Bildad says, in, in the room of God's justice, there is a door to pardon. If you seek God, implore the compassion of the Almighty. There is our word again. God Almighty. He is a compassionate God. He is willing to forgive those who come to him. And Job, in his previous speech, has said, Lord, why don't you pardon me? 
But notice, if you're pure and upright, now that could simply be saying you come sincerely to God. But he also, and as we see Job's answer in chapter 9, could be putting a bit of merit here. Job, if you'll reform yourself, if you'll become pure and upright, then he will arouse himself for you. And he will deliver you. Now, yes, you must repent, and it must be sincere. You must reform your life, and all that's true, but it's a bit facile. He'll rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Notice, he's not saying that he will accept you on the basis of covenant, the basis of his child, and pardon you, no, it's all material. If you will do this, then he's going to restore your estate. Now, it might be a small beginning, as he says in uh, verse 7, though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Might start off with small things, Job, but if you will seek God, forsake your hypocrisy, he is going to restore your estate greatly. Now, what's interesting here is that God did do this for Job, not because he was a hypocrite who repented, but because he was God's champion with whom God was at work through this, and he did double Job's estate at the end of this great trial. And then in order to confirm what he said, that God is a just God, seeing the illustration of the suffering of Job's children, God will pardon those even in their suffering who seek him. He then confirms this in verses 8 to 10. Please inquire of past generations... I consider the things searched out by their fathers, for we only of yesterday, we are only of yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you, bring forth words from their minds? Now here you see some humility in Bildad. He says, we're, we're just of today. We're new upon the earth, but there's a great tradition of biblical revelation of biblical truth delivered to the fathers. He said, Job, you don't have to accept my word or our word. You yourself know the tradition of the fathers. So inquire of past generations. Consider the things that they searched out and have, in a sense, deposited for us. And they'll teach you. They'll tell you. Bring forth the words of their heart uh, that this revelation will speak freely and and openly. Now again, there's great truth here. Uh, we think particularly of Abraham. Now, Abraham is the one in, in the um, meditation. There is that declaration of, of God's justice that Abraham makes. Abraham, who would have been Probably the ancestor of Bildad through his, con his second wife, his concubine wife. And Bildad's family would have received the messages from Abraham, both what God revealed to him, but what he learned from the fathers. If I remember correctly, Abraham overlapped with Shem. There is a direct link uh, uh, to Noah and the flood. And of course, Noah overlapped with uh, one of the very early fathers, and he with Adam. So at Abraham, at most, was four or five lifetimes, because they lived so long, from the entirety of what God has done and what he's revealed to people, both by his actions, but also by the various verbal revelation that he brought to the people. 
and search the fathers. You say, you'll know about Cain. Uh, you'll know about the flood. You'll know about the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, Abimelech. Uh, there's a great tradition here that enforces the justice of God. That God is, going, God is just and he's going to exercise justice. And there's also a great tradition. If one repents, that God will receive him and restore him to his favor. And so it's a, it's a good testimony that he brings here. And it reminds us of the importance of knowing history. My wife and I right now are reading in uh, Judges, and it's remarkable there how uh, in, in their prayers they're pleading the, the past history of what God has said or what God has done on behalf of the people. And uh, our biblical history is important, and you should know it. And boys and girls, that's why it's important you know the Bible stories. They're not simply little stories for you to know. They're stories that have been put in the Bible to reveal to you great truths about God and your relationship to Him and the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but there was also this great oral tradition that has passed on uh, through these lifetimes, uh, carrying forth what uh, God taught. And we also should love church history. And you should be reading church history and be reading historical theology. We don't do our work now with the Bible in a vacuum. You see, if we did that, we're like Bildab, uh, who says, uh, we're only of yesterday and know nothing. Our days on earth are as a shadow. Uh, we're simply here. Uh, no, we build on what the church has come to understand. The way God progressively revealed truth, um, even as men studied the Bible. So, though first they dealt with the, with the Trinity, and then with the, the deity of the Savior, and then of his mysterious person as the God-man. And then by the Reformation with the glorious doctrines of grace and in Calvin, the work of the Holy Spirit. These were things that the church through the centuries has learned. And we build on that. And that, that's the glorious advantage of being confessional Christians. Being part of a confessional church, you see. It's not what Groff or Piper think as they search the scriptures. No, we're to search the scriptures. We're to do so in the parameters of that. That we've confessed to you we believe. And we took an oath that we would not teach beyond that, which we believe is held forth in the standards. And so we have that same appeal that Bildad had. But, you know, we have something much better. And that is we have a completely uh, authoritative, inspired word of God. And as Confession says in chapter 1, paragraph 6, uh, uh, paragraph 1, Confession 1, 1, that God then put it in writing for the better preservation and propagation. Because error would creep into oral uh, communicated revelation. Ever play that game? You get in a circle, you need a few people, and you whisper something to the person who's next to you. They whisper it to the next person. By the time it gets back to you, it's not what you said. And that happens in oral communication. And so God has given us his word, this infallible word, that teaches us exactly what he would have us to believe in how you'd have us to behave. So Bildad rightly, wrongly applies it to Job's sons, but rightly declares here this principle that God is a just God. Now in the second part, verses 11 through 22, he applies the justice of God to two classes of people. 
He applies it to the hypocrite, and he applies it to the righteous person. Well, first, the hypocrite. And he uses three figures here to show us that the, uh, the hope of the hypocrite is short-lived. The confidence of the hypocrite is, uh, but, um, is, is fragile, and the prosperity of the hypocrite is deceptive. Now, the hope is short-lived. And here he compares hypocrite to a papyrus in verse 11. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can rushes grow without water while it's still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any other plant? So are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless will perish. Now, I don't know if you boys and girls know what a papyrus or a rush was, but they would grow in marshy places. They grow along uh, the Nile River, and, and from that, uh, you make paper. This paper comes from the name papyrus. Uh, they made boats and made all kinds of interesting things. They, they made clothing. But the papyrus was a very fragile plant. Uh, and it would wither not simply from the sun. You just remove the source of water, and it's dead quickly. Because it's a hollow thing. Sucks up the water. And he says that's what the hope of the hypocrite is. Notice how he describes the hypocrite. The paths of all who forget God, they are godless. What does it mean they forget God? A hypocrite is a person who lives as if there were no God. Oh, he'll say, I believe in God. He can sit in church week after week and, and make the confession of faith and, and think he joins in the prayers of people. But he doesn't live in the sight of God. He's not trusting God. And, and more seriously, his forgetting God, he thinks that God has forgotten him. As we read in, in Psalm 94, as the psalmist calls out for God's vindication of the church, he says, they've said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay a heed. That's the attitude of the hypocrite. I live my life. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. Um, and it's godlessness. You see, the hypocrite most often is an upstanding church member. There would not be great open immorality in his life, although there might be secret immorality. But he's still godless because he lives as if God forgets and he forgets God. Life not structured before God, not resting by faith in God. And that's the hypocrite. And the hypocrite is like the papyrus of the rush that God quickly takes him out of the place of moisture, which is the safe place of the covenant community, and he withers. And his hope that he's in Christ is short-lived. Now, hope needs to the next word, confidence. His confidence is fragile. And boys and girls, here you see in verse uh, 11 and uh, or 14 and 15, he compares the hypocrite to a spider whose confidence is fragile and whose trust a spider's web. He trusts in his house, but it does not stand. He holds fast to it. It does not endure. Now, all of you have seen spider webs, and you probably have seen very beautiful, intricate spider webs. And that spider web is a lodging place for the spider. And as you know, it's a trap where he catches his food. And it looks at it, and it seems to be so secure. But all we need is a, a strong rain like last night, a mighty wind, or my wife with a broom, and that spider web is gone. 
That's how fragile it is. It can take no pressure. Now, the spider trusts in his web. The spider doesn't have thoughts that this web is going to betray me. And there's where the hypocrite and the he could actually go both ways. The hypocrite, as the spider trusts his house, it does not stand. He holds fast to it as a spider clings to a spider web. He holds fast to it. It does not endure. So the confidence of the hypocrite is no stronger than a spider's web. He convinces himself that all is well between him and God. In fact, perhaps in witnessing, you've had one say to you, well, you know, uh, my life is so blessed and everything, and, and I'm happy, and, and I'm prosperous, and so I know that I'm, I'm right with God. Bring them to the spider's web. That's a false hope. Uh, they're resting in a false hope. And that false hope will be destroyed, if not now, in heaven, as we read in Matthew chapter 7. So he moves from the fragility, the impermanence of a papyrus or a rush, to the fragility of a spider web. But now he changes the figure. And in the third comparison, he shows that their confidence or their prosperity is deceptive. They're trusting prosperity. Their prosperity is deceptive. Now he compares the hypocrite to a tree. In verse 16, he, now the hypocrite compared to a tree, thrives before the sun. His shoots spread out over his garden. His roots wrap around a rock pile. He grasps a house of stone. He takes a number of figures here to show the, the permanence of a tree. It grows up in a sheltered place. It is not withered by the sun or a lack of immediate moisture. No, it thrives. And so under the sun, it branches out. And yes, it, it thrives so much that its roots can go over stone. Now, I'm sure you've seen on a sidewalk where the roots of a tree come up and, and break the cement at uh, nothing can harm that tree. You know, it's just there. It's permanent. It's this prosperity um, that is being pictured here of the hypocrite. But in, in verse 18, if he is removed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I never saw you. And there we see that his prosperity is deceitful. He might live a long time and live under great prosperity under the sun. And yet, he shall be removed by God, and his place will forget him. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 49, The inner thought is that their houses are forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They've called their lands after their own names, but man in his pomp will not endure. He's like the beast that perishes. Not a tree, but a beast. Or Psalm 37, which seems to reflect the language of this passage. I've seen a wicked, violent man spread himself like a luxuriant tree in his native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. You see, this is the lot of the hypocrite. His hope is short-lived. His confidence is fragile. His prosperity is deceptive. That God in his justice is going to deal with the hypocrite. Oftentimes in this life, through church discipline, through falling away, through grievous trials such as Job had to bear. 
but sometimes in eternity itself. Sometimes that hypocrite, either deceiving or self-deceived, will live out his life within the general garden of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, having fooled everyone, having fooled himself, perhaps, surely deceiving himself. But there will come that day when the hypocrite stands before the Lord, as we read in Matthew chapter 7, and the Savior will say to him, Depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you, man. I never placed my saving love on you. You never were a recipient of my favor. And that was obvious because of godlessness. And perhaps not gross immorality, perhaps the godlessness of, of the vanity of hypocrisy, of a double life, of trusting yourself and not God. Bunyan wonderfully captures this reality of hypocrite at God's judgment when he stands before Christ in the end of book one of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, then the angels took him up, vain hope, vain hope was a hypocrite, took up vain hope, carried him through the air to the door that I saw inside of the hill and put him in there. Then I saw there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven as well as from the city of destruction. Those who live in gross immorality shall be damned, but Bunyan teaches us to be those that will end out their days and be damned because they were hypocrites. This sets a very serious need for us this morning to reflect and to examine our consciences. We all recognize, or I trust you do, in every one of us there is a remnant of hypocrisy, isn't there? I hope you wrestle with it, mourn over it, confess it. We do things to be seen by one another. And even as God-fearers and as believers, we can do this, and we must beware of it. And we particularly must beware of it in public activities. I want to caution all of us as adults, but I want to particularly caution the boys and girls, that in prayer meeting, you must not pray because your friends prayed or because you want to be one who is recognized as praying. We want you to pray in the prayer meeting, but we want you to pray from your heart, true desires expressed to God, and not in any way to be seen or reflected on by your parents or by your friends or by the adults. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? Probably every one of us here this morning has prayed in prayer meeting uh, at some time or another to be marveled at for our great petitions. But the greater danger is not that this is lies within each of us to some degree. The greater danger is that always within the garden of the church, there are going to be rushes and spider webs and trees. Now, you need to be sure you're not one, that you're not a hypocrite. I don't think of the congregation of God's people as a bunch of unregenerate people. No, you are the people of Christ. But I'm well aware because of Scripture that within every congregation, those planted by the apostles, in every congregation are going to be those who either are deceived or are deceiving. You need to examine your own heart today. Are you resting in Christ alone for your acceptance with God? Or are you a play actor in the midst of the people of God? In fact, the Greek word for hypocrite comes from the old Greek plays who wore masks. 
Are you a mask wearer? Are, are you truly rested in Christ and desiring to please God and to, to grow in godliness? Or do you have a secret life? A secret life before a computer? A secret life at work or a social life? Or merely a life of dream and fantasy? The place where you always go and the place where you dwell? Oh, dear friend, don't live as if God does not see. Do not live as God, as one who forgets God. You live your life before him. You give an answer to him. And so be sure this day that you're not playing games, but that you're resting in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation. That's the application of justice to the hypocrite. We briefly see an application of justice to the righteous person, the non-hypocrite, at the end of this chapter, the last three verses. Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity. That word integrity is one of the words for blamelessness, such as uh, is used of Job himself. One who's not sinlessly perfect, but one who is not a hypocrite. The one whose life is, is open and consistent before God. God will not reject the man of a blameless life, the man of integrity. In contrast, he can't leave off the hypocrite, nor will he support the evildoer. He said, don't confuse the two. But God will not reject the man of integrity. And what will he do? He will yet, now he speaks directly to Job. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Now, he's speaking of God's mercy, and God in justice does remember mercy. It's a, it's a glorious truth for us, as I've already said, to keep in mind regardless of our sin. If we seek him in repentance and faith, he will pardon us because that is his great and glorious character. He will not reject us. He will restore us. He will bring laughter in the place of sorrow. And our enemies will be clothed with shame. Sooner or later, those who oppose Christ and the gospel will, as his enemies were eventually clothed with shame, will be clothed with shame. And their tent, compared now to their tree, will be no longer. And so, God in justice will not forget the boy, the girl, the man, the woman of integrity. The one who has a new heart, who rests in Christ for imputed righteousness of justification, sins, pardon, constituted legally righteous, but the one who is longing to grow in conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is um, bearing good fruit. The one who builds on the rock. God will not forget you. Regardless of what life is like, God has not forgotten you, and you need to understand that. But God will forget and cast off the hypocrite. But look at the irony of verse 22. Job was restored, as I said, not because he repented of gross wickedness, but because this was all part of God's plan. But who was clothed with shame at the end of the book? Eliphaz, Bildad, and their other friend. Clothed with shame because of how they treated Job. And that which they pronounced to happen to the hypocrite happens to them. And so, in Bildad's keen insight 
on God's justice and a proper application in principle of that justice to the hypocrite and to the righteous, simply with its wrong application. We learn that God is a just God who wisely executes justice. And we then should revel and glory in the justice of God. Gaze upon it. It's revealed to you in Scripture, in story after story, and in precept after precept. Rejoice in the justice of God. As the psalmist does at the end of Psalm 98, that when our Savior comes and He's now come, He's enthroned, He is perfectly exercising judgment and justice. But understand, as you praise God for justice and judgment, that it is incomprehensible. That you've seen but the fringes of His way. And rejoice in that. To recognize that what you've seen is but a bare expression of who He really is. And that we shall grow in our grasp of Him now and in heaven as well. But, but also, my dear friends, glory in God's justice because it brings you assurance of your salvation. What? How can God's justice bring me assurance of my salvation? It says he destroys the wicked and the godless. Well, our verse of pardon, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous, better word, just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You've thought about that. God is promising that because he's just, you know all your sins are pardoned. Now, how does that work? Because God's justice was fully satisfied in the obedience and the hell-bearing suffering on the cross death and burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. I was meditating this week, probably more than it's ever hit me before, that Christ was on the cross six hours. We, we often focus on the last three, but from the very first moment, not only was he bearing the physical pain and the emotional pain and the shame as he hangs there naked, but the whole time, his soul is soaked with the just wrath of God for you and me. And because of that, because he's a just God, because he does not pervert justice, you know your sins are forgiven. If you confess them, rest in that. Rest in Christ. And one more thing. As we think about God's justice, we then think about vindication. Because he's promised it. In Psalm 94, I read the end of that statement, but the psalmist cries out, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. Almost like he hears Bildad here. <laughs> All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow, the stranger. They murder orphans. And they've said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Now, you've had minor assaults in your own life and persecutions and been misunderstood. And sometimes God will vindicate you more immediately and bring shame on your enemies. And sometimes not. But he will. He will. But particularly as I read this, I thought about... 
God's justice and the persecuted church. And on one hand, we say, where are you, O God? Where are you? We should be praying here with the psalmist, O Lord God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, and render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord? But he goes on to say, Verse 13, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. His judgment will again be righteous, and the upright in heart will follow it. That's the confidence, my dear friends, that we pray boldly for our brothers and sisters. And long that God will rise up for them and know that he will. In his own perfect, incomprehensible time, he will. It might be yet when they die, but he will. And so we can say with confidence what Daniel says at the end of the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. Others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the man to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.